Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by public health expert Irfan Dalla to talk about the vaccine rollout, whether and how we should begin to allow cross-border travel, and lessons learned to ensure we are prepared for the next pandemic and better yet, prevent the next pandemic. Many of you likely follow Irfan on Twitter already. If you don't, you should, as he's been a voice of reason on that platform throughout the pandemic. He's also the vice president and general internist at Unity Health Toronto, associate professor at U of T's medical school, and currently the co-chair of Canada's expert advisory panel on testing and screening. Now that panel has issued four reports to date, and its most recent report makes recommendations for changes to our border management practices, including doing away with the hotel quarantine system and including quarantine exemptions for fully vaccinated travelers and those with proof of immunity. Our government will hopefully act on the panel's advice sooner than later and open the border to fully vaccinated travelers. I've come to know Irfan better through conversations around drug policy, where he is also a voice of reason, and he's a constituent of Beaches East York, so someone I certainly follow and rely upon for advice, though I don't record all of the conversations that we have together. Irfan, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Nate. Recent news is that we now have a new chief medical officer here in Ontario, Kieran Moore from Kingston. You, over a year ago now, in an argument that we should pursue elimination, you wrote that there are heartening stories from New Brunswick and Kingston that show that elimination is not only a desirable target in Canada, but also one that may be within reach. So while it's been a frustrating response throughout this pandemic at the provincial level here in Ontario, Kieran Moore appears to be an inspired choice. Yeah, I think he is. I mean, he did really aim for zero cases throughout the pandemic. He was very prepared even before the World Health Organization and others declared it a pandemic. He's been very transparent with the people of Kingston and surrounding areas. And if you look at the record, you know, I don't know the exact number of cases, but Kingston's only suffered three deaths through the whole pandemic. I mean, if Ontario as a whole had done as well, we would be looking at, you know, somewhere around 100 deaths, I think, instead of 8,000. So that gives you a sense. And, you know, I mean, Kingston isn't Toronto or Peel, but it is a border town. It has a border with the United States. It's on the 401. There's a lot of international travel. There's a university. There's a correctional facility. You know, I, I think when you look at what Dr. Moore and his colleagues at the Public Health Unit have actually done, and, you know, if your uh, listeners are interested, I would recommend his testimony to the Long-Term Care Commission, where he really lays out what they did to prepare long-term care homes for the pandemic and then what they did when infections started to to come in. I think it's quite evident that he he did manage the pandemic differently than it has been managed in other parts of the country. And so I do think he's a great choice for Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario. And with his focus on tracing in particular, where we've seen Kingston, they had no new cases the other day, which struck me as shocking. And they have really emphasized tracing more than many other public health authorities. And you have written, as we look to reopen, that capacity for tracing ought to be really what we we tether reopening to. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty optimistic. The vaccines are extraordinarily effective. And, you know, I would encourage all of your listeners to to go get vaccinated. But nevertheless, the safest way to reopen is for us to have knowledge about how the disease is being transmitted in the community. And so ideally, we would know 
you know, where every outbreak is occurring, where the cases are going, we would be supporting people through quarantine and getting them tested at the same time. And then what you find is, of course, that you're finding the positive cases in people who are already in quarantine. And then those people, because they're in quarantine, they can't transmit to anyone else. And so the chains of transmission come to an end. And so if you look at Kingston Public Health's uh, website and their Twitter feed, you know, every day they report the number of new cases and they report the number where they know the source or, you know, where it's a close contact or outbreak related. And so you can see, I mean, yesterday or the day before they had zero cases, but even on a day when they have 10 cases, you can see, okay, well, they know the source of eight of these. And that, I think, gives the public reassurance assurance that the disease isn't just circulating widely in the community. You know that if you, you know, are going to school potentially or to a workplace, your risk is much lower than if you're in a community where we don't know where and how the disease is circulating. You mentioned the importance of vaccines to see ourselves out of this crisis. You have written recently alongside two co-authors in The Globe, it was an early and wise decision to extend the interval between first and second doses in order to maximize the number of Canadians who would be protected from infection, and that the policy to delay second doses saved many lives. But then you and your co-authors go on to say, now that a large majority of Canadian adults have been vaccinated over the age of 12, we really need to prioritize people who are 70 plus with second doses. If you were in a position to direct the second dose strategy, what, what should we be looking at? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing we learned very early in the pandemic is that people who are at highest risk of death from COVID-19 are people who are older, you know, 80 plus and then 70 plus and, you know, we are very, very lucky, really, that there have been an extraordinarily small number of deaths among children and even young adults. So while it's, of course, vital that every adult and, you know, adolescents now get vaccinated, that helps bring the pandemic to an end. The majority of deaths are still occurring in people who are over 70 and especially people who are over 80. Uh, some of those individuals still haven't gotten their first dose of a vaccine, but there have been hospitalizations and even deaths in people who are over 80 and over 70 who have had one dose, but not their second dose. So, you know, actually we're not in an either or situation. But if we were in an either or situation, you could actually argue that it's more important to give a second dose to somebody who's over 80 than it is to give a first dose to a teenager or a young adult, particularly if that young adult isn't an essential worker and is able to work from home and doesn't have a lot of high risk contacts. But it's not an either or situation, to your point. And so in the same way as here in the East End, we see pop up clinics where they're targeted in school environments, they're targeted in hotspot priority areas, or in some cases, they recently did a drive-through for seniors. We could easily do a drive-through pop-up for second doses. Absolutely. So I, I would say, let's do that. So it's you're right. It's not an either-or situation. So what you know, Nathan Stahl and Allison McGear and I argued in that article is that let's just open it up so at least people who are over the age of 70 can book an appointment, kind of compete online for those limited appointment spots with teenagers and young adults. So let's do that at minimum. But then I, I would agree with you that we need to do more for people who are older, make it easy for them to get a vaccine. Actually, if you look at the data, one out of four Ontarians over the age of 80 in the neighborhoods that have been hardest hit by COVID still haven't even gotten their first dose. 
So, you know, we need to make sure that those folks, you know, it's really easy for them to get a vaccine. Often that means giving the vaccine to their family physicians because, you know, almost everybody over the age of 80 has a family physician. They trust their family physician. They can go see their family physician in their family physician's office or potentially their family physician can do a home visit. You know, and it's hard work. Like the mass pop-ups are amazing and it's fantastic We can when we can get 10,000 people vaccinated in a single day. But it's also really important to go door to door, you know, and vaccinate 20 people in a day. And if you're vaccinating people who are really high risk, then, then we're saving lives. And similarly, we're going to need those kind of efforts to make sure that everybody who is over 70 gets their second dose as well. And we should do that concurrently with these large clinics that are getting all the essential workers, the young adults, the people who are in schools and universities and so on. My cousin sent me this picture of this big vaccination bus. As we increasingly look to reach people who haven't been reached through the mass efforts to date and the pop-ups to date, and it does come down to trust. So the family physicians and those existing relationships, but the mobile units strike me as critically important too. And then partnering with existing agencies that do the meal delivery to, to seniors at home. And there are all sorts of opportunities and partnerships to take advantage of there, but really the mobile units seem like an important critical last mile effort. Totally. And, you know, the community organizations in East York and uh, Michael Guerin Hospital have been doing an amazing job. Vaccine uptake rates are, are very high. Uh, and actually, we're seeing this, you know, not just in East York, but in other parts of the city and other parts of the province and, frankly, the country as a whole. And that's why now when we look at international comparisons, you know, at, at the beginning of the vaccine campaign, we were behind the United Kingdom and the United States. We've caught up to the United States. Probably this week or next week, we will catch up and pass the United Kingdom. You know, there's a there's a pretty good chance that in a few weeks, we will have a higher vaccine uptake rate than any other country in the world, or at least any other country with more than a million people. You know, and that's, uh, you know, a credit, I think, to a lot of people, volunteers, healthcare workers, community organizations, hospitals, and our elected leaders who made, you know, a lot of good decisions, actually, when it's come to making sure we have a portfolio of vaccines, the first dose fast strategy, you know, the delivery, supporting community organizations and hospitals to do this, targeting doses to hotspots. There have actually been a lot of really good decisions when it comes to our vaccine campaign. Well, I hope that the second dose rollout happens even faster than the current stated timelines. And when you consider those international comparisons, I think unquestionably at the moment, we will be one of the first countries in the world to be fully vaccinated. And Canadians are certainly in the emails I received clamoring for reopening to different degrees. And we have to be cautious as we reopen, but there are also are really important reasons to reopen in, in some respects as it relates to travel. And, and when we look at the equities of family reunification, when we look at the equities of our immigration intake and refugee intake, or simply when we look at the, the fairness of people that do cross-border business who have been deeply impacted by this pandemic, there are all sorts of reasons. You are also the co-chair of the expert panel on testing and screening for the federal government. And your recent report from May 28th, which is related to priority strategies to optimize testing and quarantine at Canada's borders, you make a series of recommendations. What's the current state of the science and what should the federal government be, be acting upon? It has been and continues to be a really rich discussion at the panel. We have members from coast to coast across a wide variety of disciplines and bringing an assortment of expertise to the table. Uh, actually, Kieran Moore is one of the members of the, of the panel. 
And um, we've had great support from the sort of staff and the federal government and also a group of really hardworking uh, and extraordinary uh, students and resident physicians. When it comes to the border, which is, you know, holy smokes, a hot potato, we took the view that the primary consideration, of course, is the health and safety of Canadians. But there are also other considerations. We're not an island nation. There are supply chains and, you know, tens of thousands of trucks crossing the border every day. And vaccination rates are are increasing. And so we made our recommendations to the minister in that context. And so I think the recommendation that we made to discontinue hotel quarantine has gotten a lot of attention. But, you know, we, we took the view that, first of all, any system should be equitable in terms of land and air travel. And we've all heard the stories and seen the news reports of Canadians in other countries or in the United States flying to a border town and then driving over the border so that they could avoid hotel quarantine. Similarly, we've seen stories of people landing in an airport and then choosing to pay a fine rather than go to a hotel quarantine. We've also seen outbreaks in some of the hotels, both in Canada and in other countries, particularly Australia. And and quite frankly, a three-day hotel quarantine doesn't fit with the incubation period of the virus, right? So if we were going to have hotel quarantine, we would need for it to be much longer. We would need for it to apply to land and air travel. And we would need more precautions in place to minimize outbreaks in the hotels. And we would need a system to make sure that people actually went to the hotels and didn't choose to just pay a fine. On top of all that, we've seen in Canada, and particularly in the Atlantic provinces, and also in other countries, most notably Singapore, that home-based quarantine can be extremely effective. The key with home-based quarantine, though, of course, is that people have to adhere to it. So what we recommended was the phased discontinuation of hotel quarantine and really beefing up the home quarantine program so that, uh, you know, Canadians could be assured that if for people who are coming into the country, and particularly people who are coming in and haven't been vaccinated yet, that they would actually adhere to home quarantine and only after their quarantine period is done, after they've had three tests, three negative tests for COVID-19, only then would they be allowed back into society. And of course, that, you know, that kind of a system would keep Canadians safe. For fully vaccinated travelers, your recommendations are to have exemption from quarantine entirely, have a test upon arrival and and proof of vaccination. But otherwise, the evidence is clear that those who have been vaccinated are safe such that they ought not to, to quarantine if they've then tested upon arrival and the test has come back negative. Yeah, and I think we're going to see more and more countries start to move in this direction. You know, these vaccines work. They're highly effective at preventing severe disease, and they're also effective at preventing transmission. So if you've had two doses of a two-dose vaccine or one dose of a one-dose vaccine and you're fully vaccinated, you, you really can do the kinds of things that we used to be able to do, particularly with others who are vaccinated. And, you know, if you've got a, you know, if you're immunocompromised or there's some other reason why the vaccine might not have worked for you, then you might need to take some additional precautions. But for the vast majority of us, once you're fully vaccinated, you can start to do the kinds of things that you, you know, it, it will feel weird to go back into someone else's home and to share a meal with them without a mask. The CDC in the United States has already recommended, I think their recommendations have been out now for a couple of months, that 
people who are fully vaccinated can go into the homes of others who are fully vaccinated and enjoy a meal together without masks. And so in that vein, you know, similarly, if somebody has been fully vaccinated, there's really no need for them to be quarantined after they arrive in the country. We did recommend a single test on arrival primarily for surveillance purposes. One of the fears that people have at the moment, of course, is that there might be a variant for which the vaccines don't work at all, right? The true vaccine escape. And if that happens, then hopefully that kind of a surveillance system will help detect those variants. And then, of course, the recommendations would need to evolve, right? I mean, in a sense, nobody would be fully vaccinated if we have a variant which uh, is truly a vaccine escape variant. And, you know, one thing we've learned during the pandemic is it's it's a mistake to, to make a set of recommendations or a set of decisions and then not reevaluate, right? We need to keep looking at the data. We need to keep reevaluating and we may need to tweak these recommendations or tweak the decisions that we make in the months and, you know, in the months to come. And on that concern around vaccine escape, on the one hand, it makes eminent sense to me. I wish we'd done it a month ago, <laughs> but I think the evidence has been clear for some time. And I'm glad that your expert panel makes it clear as well that those who are fully vaccinated can be free from quarantine upon arrival and that we should be working as quickly as possible. I think in the language of your expert panel to work with our partners to ensure that there are these processes in place for vaccine proof and, and, and that we get that kind of travel going again for the sake of fairness, but also the sake of our economy. On the other hand, as it relates to vaccine escape, those who have not been vaccinated but are exempt or are themselves Canadian and so can therefore travel despite recommendations otherwise that they can they can travel for individuals who have been partially vaccinated or, or completely unvaccinated but but fall into categories that allow them to continue to travel. Compliance seems essential. And so increasing that compliance. So the hotel quarantine pushes people in some cases away from that level of compliance, but and, and that I took to be one of the recommendations to say, let's move away from this. Let's let's have a uniform set of, of rules for people, regardless, air, land, et cetera. Did you turn your minds to how we can improve compliance of those who, who must continue to quarantine? That is it daily check-ins via phone calls and, and, and door knocks? What should we, the federal government be looking at in terms of compliance and partnership with provinces? Obviously, it's a provincial conversation too. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we didn't make recommendations about the specifics, but I think in many jurisdictions, including I think in Canada right now, there are daily checks and, you know, the daily checks work. Social norms are really important. You know, very early in the pandemic or, you know, let's say in the summer of 2020, the social norms in Atlantic Canada about interprovincial travel and then adherence to home-based quarantine were very different than they were in the rest of the country. Uh, You know, I've talked to people who went to Atlantic Canada last summer or in the fall. And, you know, there really was an expectation from the community that you would stay in your own home. And people did stay in their in their own homes or in, in wherever, you know, home-based setting or home-like setting they were quarantining in. You know, we've seen in Canada that, so right now, there's a, you're supposed to have a test on arrival and then a test several days later. And we know not everyone follows through with that second test. Right. And so we need to make sure that there is a system in place for people who have not been vaccinated, that they are actually collecting the sample for the second test. And, you know, if they don't collect the sample, then maybe we should be sending somebody to the home to see, you know, are they actually still at their own home? 
Can we get a sample for them? What do they need? Often people don't know. They need a little bit of education. Sometimes people need help collecting the sample, those kinds of things. All that said, hopefully, if there are no vaccine escape variants, and if we can get vaccination coverage rates up above 80%, maybe even above 90% for adults, this will start to become less and less of an issue. Herd immunity is sort of an elusive concept, and it's not quite as black and white as sometimes it's made out to be. But we will hopefully end up in a scenario where even if the odd person with COVID-19 is coming back into the community, the chains of transmission are very short. There's nowhere for the disease to go. And, uh, you know, there are no no large outbreaks. But we will need surveillance systems in place to kind of mitigate against that and to make sure that we are detecting outbreaks when they're small. You mentioned the Atlantic provinces, and it seems like a very long time ago. But in May of last year, you wrote a different op-ed in The Globe calling for elimination versus adaptation. And you held up not only Kingston and New Brunswick, but the Atlantic provinces did take that message to heart and they did aim for elimination. Other provinces in our federation opted for adaptation and we've seen the consequences of that. And we and take a step back and look more broadly internationally. The countries that have focused on elimination have not been perfect in meeting that goal, but they have had economies that have been able to function in a way that ours has not. And certainly here in Ontario, we've been under lockdown here in Toronto for for many, many months. And the countries that pursued an adaptation strategy really struggled. The UK, as, as an example, and vaccinations, thankfully, came very fast in, in a way that people, I think, may not have expected. And, and so that's allowed the UK to get to a greater sense of normalcy. But thinking back a year ago, it's I don't even know if I have a question other than to say you were right. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, so like, first of all, it's not that I have some sort of special knowledge. This was actually what the World Health Organization was saying. You know, I, I would argue that they didn't kind of shout it as loudly, maybe as would have been ideal. And I think we were, you know, we were really damaged in North America and in Europe by the responses in the United States and the United Kingdom. You could imagine if there had been a different president who had a very collaborative relationship with the World Health Organization, and that president said, you know, our experts are going to work with the World Health Organization experts. We're, we're going to work together. We're going to create the right strategy for the United States. I think Canada would have probably followed suit. And if the United States had said, we are going to, you know, try to snuff out every outbreak as it happens, we're really going to invest in testing and contact tracing and support people through isolation and quarantine, we, we would have probably done the same in Canada. And so what happened in the world is that a number of countries, primarily in Southeast Asia and also Australia and New Zealand, and maybe you could include probably Norway and Finland in this group, did take that approach, that they were going to try to find every case of COVID, they were going to trace every contact, and then they were going to support people through isolation and quarantine, and they were going to try to snuff out every chain of transmission. And by and large, in those places, the healthcare systems were not overwhelmed. Very few people died from COVID-19. 
because the healthcare systems were not overwhelmed, they didn't have the kinds of other impacts we've had, you know, in terms of mental health, in terms of drug overdoses, etc. Kids in those places have been able to stay in school, or at least much more school than, than we've had in Toronto and, and elsewhere in Canada. And also people have been able to work. And so the economies haven't been as hard hit. There are also social impacts, right? People being able to spend time with their families and their friends and their grandchildren and so on. And so that was a consensus view among the World Health Organization and other experts in many countries, but for reasons that that are really hard to understand, you know, it wasn't what happened in the United States and in the United Kingdom. And I think those countries are just so influential in, you know, in terms of how we follow sometimes in Canada. And, you know, to their credit, the Atlantic provinces really took a different path. You know, and they didn't always do it totally explicitly. I think it just sort of became the prevailing view that they, the the medical officers of health there and the and the people and the elected leaders started to see that actually they could keep the outbreaks very small, they could follow every every chain of transmission, and by doing so, they could have fewer restrictions than we've had in you know in Ontario, and, and of course, they saved a lot of lives in doing so. I think a misguided view that countries needed to balance economy versus health, instead of understanding that if we don't protect health, then we're not going to have economic activity and that will lead to restrictions. I think also we, I I saw a paper recently that held up the success of digital contact tracing, which is another conversation we just refused to have in Canada for, as someone who cares about privacy, I I thought it was baffling that we, we weren't willing to have that conversation given what was at stake. As we were setting this up, and I appreciate your time, I always appreciate your time, but as we were setting this up, you sent me a note to say, let's talk about the independent panel's report on pandemic preparedness. And obviously, when you talk about international guidance from the WHO, we need to strengthen the WHO going forward. There's been talk about, and it was a recommendation from the independent panel that we need a pandemic treaty in relation to preparedness. You were right, I think, calling for a focus on elimination. You were, you've been right to call for a stronger investment in testing, tracing, isolation, and support. I think you're right about the first dose strategy being successful and that we need a, a really stronger focus on second dose strategy right now. If you're in my shoes in relation to pandemic preparedness, where does the conversation need to be in relation to taking the recommendations from that independent panel and bringing them to bear on a national conversation here in Canada? Great question. I mean, we're, we're fortunate in Canada that we have really broad and deep expertise on these issues. And actually, there's a Canadian who served on that uh, independent panel, Dr. Joanne Liu. And, you know, maybe she'll come on the podcast and, and give you that advice. I had her on my list of people. Do oh, I haven't you? invited her yet, but I might, I might just invite her. You know, I'm not an expert in global health governance by any means. And so I I would hesitate to weigh in on what I think Canada should do in the global arena. I mean, I think we should obviously cooperate with the World Health Organization and with other countries and try to come to some sort of global consensus on what should what should happen next. I think, you know, my my involvement in these issues started with SARS in 2003 when, you know, I was just finishing medical school and I served as a as an assistant on the uh, National Advisory Committee that was put together at the time and chaired by David Naylor. And I think what came out of that 
federal effort and a similar provincial effort here in Ontario was the creation of the Public Health Agency of Canada federally, Public Health Ontario here in the province, and also, you know, other organizations, other forms of support, and a feeling among many of us that we were we were ready. And, and the truth is that I didn't pay very much attention to this Wuhan coronavirus that, uh, you know, eventually we started to call COVID-19 when it first started to generate news in January 2020 and then February 2020. And reading the independent panel report, it's quite striking. The authors of that report talk about February 2020 as the lost month. And I think that many of us who work in the acute care system, you know, my my day job obviously is uh, at a hospital. I don't want to speak for others, but I I think I felt that Public Health Ontario, Public Health Agency of Canada, our other experts, and the World Health Organization were were sort of paying attention. And if they were worried, they would let us know, and then. I would really start to worry. And it turns out they, you know, the World Health Organization did issue, you know, the highest form of warning they can possibly issue at the end of January. They declared COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern, which is, you know, sort of a very wordy phrase. And the truth is most of us really didn't pay all that much attention to it. I don't I don't know what the internal conversations were like at Public Health Ontario and the Public Health Agency of Canada, but it didn't the sense of an emergency certainly didn't percolate out to to hospitals or I think even local public health units. And so that's why as February went on, it was largely business as usual here, uh, you know, all the way into March. You know, I myself went on a holiday with my family in early March before, of course, there were any travel advisories or anything like that. And then it was only in mid-March 2020 when governments around the world started to realize that we were in a, you know, in a lot of trouble. And so, you know, it's quite clear that if we could go back in time, we would do things differently in January and probably especially in February 2020 and then moving forward. So I, I think, you know, if I were in your shoes, I guess I would say, what could I do with my colleagues, you know, with the staff who work at Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada to make sure we have the systems in place to not have that happen again? And then in addition, I think, Another thing that has become very clear is, so we made some mistakes early on in the pandemic, but then how good were our systems at learning and adapting to data and making data-driven decisions through the spring of 2020, through the summer, through the fall, through the winter? You know, it does seem a little bit like, at least in some provinces, it's just been, we do this again and again and again. We think, okay, we're out of the pandemic, and then it happens again. And, you know, we were really fortunate that it hasn't taken all that long to develop and produce these vaccines. And we got to keep in mind, we have not actually mass-produced enough vaccine for the world. We've really only mass-produced enough vaccine for a small number of high-income countries so far, and we're very fortunate to live in one of those countries. But if it weren't for the vaccines, you know, I think I would be worried that we would just be about to do this again, right? And so how do we put in place resilient systems so that we can learn from data in real time 
and make changes. You know, a lot of us were wrong about a lot of things, right? I mean, I, I was not an advocate for mask wearing at the beginning. That went against what we had been taught. I was not an advocate for border restrictions. Again, that was sort of uh, not what we had been taught. But when you start to look at the data and you see that the places where mask wearing is high are doing much better, or the places where they put in some measures to reduce the number of cases of COVID that are coming into the country, they're doing better. You know, we need to be able to adapt quickly and, and change change our path. One of the things I love about the independent panel report is the title, which is Make It the Last Pandemic. And, and hopefully we can do that. But if there is another pandemic or if there's another virus that might turn into a pandemic, you know, it might not behave the same way as COVID-19, right? The, the way that it transmits might be different. Um, the incubation period might be different. It might have different impact on young people versus older people. And so we definitely, you know, I think coming out of this with a view that we need to prevent the next COVID pandemic or a pandemic that looks just like COVID would probably be too narrow. If there's one thing we, we've learned, I hope, is that we need to sort of be ready for the unexpected. It's interesting, the title of the report, because I actually thought it should be titled be prepared for the next pandemic because the, the bulk of the report was focused on better coordination among different levels of government, including international levels of coordination to maintain political commitment to preparedness, which is critical because we've seen in the past this political commitment post SARS that then waned over the years and then PPE expired and there wasn't the same understanding of the risks. And I, I think the same has happened in other countries, although the countries that were more prepared for this, including South Asian countries, were those that have experienced some of this risk more recently or more repeated instances of risk. The idea of adopting a pandemic framework convention to better empower the WHO to take that coordinating role so that it's not just this message from the end of January that it then isn't listened to, that there is a much stronger coordinating function. The WHO plays a more serious role alongside PHAC in, in the Canadian context. Investment in preparedness now that we have national preparedness plans against targets and benchmarks that are set in collaboration with the WHO. The improved systems for surveillance was the one area where you could imagine it is focused on prevention, that animal and environmental health surveillance will then help us prevent outbreaks from happening, monitor the situation. But I almost feel like the secondary report, you know, there was a report from the UN Environment Program from July of last year. There some other reports that are related as well about preventing pandemics and reducing pandemic risk in relation to a one health approach. And I almost feel like we need to marry these two ideas together and have a focus on a national pandemic prevention and preparedness plan or, or, or even legislation that would require reporting into parliament to ensure that we, we maintain that sense of political commitment. And this is the bias I have as a politician, but I do want to make sure that when I'm done in this job and someone wakes up 20 years from now or, or 50 years from now, whenever it might be, that that political commitment isn't lost and that we, we aren't doomed to repeat history. Yeah, I hope you're right. I mean, I think that title was probably a little bit of a rhetorical device. Hopefully it'll stimulate a little bit of thinking, maybe stimulate the resources that are needed, stimulate the discussions that are needed to empower the World Health Organization and the, and the various national and subnational bodies. Of course, at the end of the day, we don't know whether there will be another pandemic or there won't be another pandemic. And what we need to do is be prepared. And, you know, there's so many different things we can do to be prepared. We've learned so much. And I think, you know, we, we owe it to 
to the people who died and to their families to learn as much as we can from this pandemic so that we can try to make it the last pandemic. And if it's not the last pandemic, at least be prepared for the next pandemic so we can minimize the harm you know, when it happens. I would never have imagined that 10 million people, you know, that's probably the best estimate we have right now, and the numbers are still still increasing, right? I would never have imagined that 10 million people would, would die from COVID-19, and that countries like Vietnam, which do not have the resources that countries like the United States, United Kingdom, France, Germany, Canada have, would make it through the pandemic with just a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of deaths that we've suffered here, which shows that it is really about preparedness and the ability to change the decisions that we're making in response to what we're seeing. In some ways, the prescription is the same lessons that you and I have have talked about before of real investments in testing, tracing, isolation, and support that we make sure that as it relates to preparedness, we are able to scale up testing and tracing in a serious way when the time comes. We're able to support people in a serious way when the time comes. And I suppose you would add to that in terms of lessons learned that we didn't know before this pandemic in relation to the public health measures like mask wearing, distancing, and proper ventilation depending upon the nature of the virus that that might come next, but certainly with respect to this one. And then the border restrictions, which, as you say, the evidence did shift and has been really clear where strong border measures, border management have really helped some countries maintain their health and safety. Are there other, if we think of the national context in in terms of preparedness, is it as simple as that? You know, I think you've touched on a real a lot of really important points there. I think one other one I would uh, make is the linkage between public health and healthcare. So how you scale up is not entirely clear, right? We can't have a public health system that is always ready for massive testing, contact tracing thousands of cases a day when there are no cases at all, right? And so how do we scale up? And I think one thing we learned early in the pandemic is actually that the acute care system was in many ways better able to scale up quickly than public health. And so most of the testing centers were located at hospitals in Ontario. Um, Even the vaccination rollout, a lot of the mass vaccine clinics have been at hospitals. The support for long-term care homes in Ontario, a lot of that has been provided by hospitals. And so how do we make sure that the interactions between public health and healthcare are such that when we need to scale up, we can do it? And we can do it in a way that is consistent with the evidence. So one thing we weren't able to scale up quite as quickly as would have been ideal is the contact tracing capacity, right? And the quarantine, the quarantine monitoring and adherence. And so, you know, I think some people wonder, well, should hospitals have been tasked with that as well? I mean, I can tell you that we had far more than we could really manage in the early part of the pandemic. And then again, in wave two and wave three. So I'm not sure that that's the answer to say, like hospitals should take this on. And public health has the expertise and the responsibility, but they don't necessarily have the resources and the staff, or that's what it seemed to be. So how can we work together more effectively? Actually, that's one of the things that I think Kieran Moore did really well in Kingston. And and maybe it's we need to even go beyond healthcare, right? You know, people obviously we did end up 
calling in the military to supplement the ability to provide care in long-term care homes. But maybe if there really truly is another pandemic like COVID-19, you know, maybe we will need to look beyond public health and the healthcare system to bring in the resources quickly. You know, and that's why this, you know, I think the independent panel, they did make uh, a number of recommendations about how this has to be a cross-sectoral approach. You know, I think the pandemic made clear that this is not a healthcare problem or not exclusively a healthcare problem. And it's not even exclusively a public health problem. It really is a whole of society issue. And everyone has skin in the game. Everyone should have a voice. And how do we make these decisions together? You know, sometimes it felt like the health community was being pitted against the business community. But as you put it earlier in this conversation, you know, what we have learned is that actually it turns out that the best, you know, the best strategy for health and healthcare probably also turns out to be the best strategy for getting people back to work. And so maybe if we could go back in time, roll back the clock, what if we had gone back to spring of 2020 and put together a you know multi-sector roundtable and said, like, what, what's the best strategy for for all of the sectors together, you know, if we could look forward, I, I think we would have made some decisions very differently. And multi-sectoral on prevention too, in the sense that when I speak to experts on a one health approach, it's in relation to environmental health, animal health, and yeah. human health. And we can't pull these pieces apart. So we need all these various departments and components to be working together. Uh, other lessons learned, obviously, lessons that go back to even your SARS report, when you're when you're looking at support for public health agencies, Public Health Agency of Canada, that was a lesson learned, but we haven't empowered public health agencies with resources across this country, as well as the SARS report certainly was calling for. We haven't had a vaccine, a national vaccine strategy in a way that I think we are, are moving towards as we see investments across the board in, in different facilities to make sure we are never placed in a position where we have to pursue vaccine procurement and rely upon international vaccine manufacturing, that there is this really really focused effort, at least now nationally, to build out domestic manufacturing capacity. And then the same domestic manufacturing conversation around PPE too. So there are a number of lessons learned. And I do think this idea of a pandemic prevention and preparedness plan and even legislation that forces governments to regularly update those plans, maybe that's the way to focus the conversation as a, as a legislator like me to say, I'm, not, I'm no expert, but I, I, I am going to ask that governments and then experts come together and, and require that they report to the public every three, five years or so to say, update your plan and then provide your plan to the public. Sounds like a very wise way forward. <laughs> well, thanks, Sirfan. I appreciate your time. As always, I could talk to you for, for much longer, but I know you've got work to do. Likewise. And obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in touch and, and keep talking, but I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you're doing. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. In keeping with Irfan's comments and the expert panel's advice around safe travel for fully vaccinated travelers, I've recently joined U.S. Congressman Brian Higgins and my liberal colleague Wayne Easter to call for the border to open to those with proof of immunity and that we waive quarantine rules for these travelers. Just as we have followed public health guidance to enact restrictions, we need to follow the same public health guidance and the evidence to lift them for the sake of family reunification and cross-border commerce. As always, please subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and leave a positive review on your platform of choice. Otherwise, until next time.